name is Jenny, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Jenny. Love you, Jenny. <laughs> I love y'all, too. Kathy was talking to me yesterday, sitting out on the bench, and she said, you know, she was trying to think of what I would like for her to say, and I said, just as long as you don't say anything I have to live up to, <laughs> you know. Uh, this has been a fantastic weekend. I told them I think they picked the wrong time for me to speak. I cry easy, and conferences just fill me up so that I just really, it's a hard, it's real hard to to keep myself together, you know. Um, I was saying to Sue this morning that before we came to the program, and before I came to the program, I laughed at all the good times and I cried at all the bad times. And I come into the program and it's just reversed, you know. I laugh at all the bad times and I cry at all the good times. And that's kind of the way my life is today. Um, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me. Um, it's a very special compliment. And I'm just real glad to be here. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, the first time I drank, I was 16. I had a date with a fellow that was 18. We went to a private club, drove 70 miles to a private club. I had Tom Collins. And they were wonderful. I don't know how we got in, but we did. And I drank, and I got drunk, and I got sick, and I went into the bathroom, threw up, made a mess. Some little ladies in there cleaned me up and straightened me out and shuffled me back out on the floor. And I went back to the table, and I sat down, and I ordered another drink. Because, you see, I thought that's the way you did it. It never occurred to me that that was when I should stop and go home, you know. I just wanted one more. Um, I look back now, and I know that the fact that, that I got drunk the first time I drank didn't make me an alcoholic. And the fact that I got sick the first time I drank didn't make me an alcoholic. It was that warning, just one more. And that was with me from the very beginning. Uh, I don't know whether I was born an alcoholic, but I know that when I took that first drink, I was ready. And that didn't mean that I drank every day, because I didn't, I couldn't. Uh, but from that point on, the only thing I wanted was to get out on my own and do what I needed to do. And I married this man that introduced me to alcohol. and. I was 17 years old, and you know, it was a funny thing, I look back and he drank every day, <coughs> drank every day, and I wouldn't drink with him. I drank only at parties and when we had company and someone else suggested it. And I think, why was I doing that? And I look back and I remember I never wanted anybody to know how much I liked it. Didn't want anybody to know how much I liked it. 
And so I would hide the way I drank in parties and in groups. And it was real funny because when he would go out of town, I would drink. I drank every day he was gone. But when he came back, I didn't drink. And I was hiding my drinking at that time at 17. Um, we were married for nine years and we had a little girl out of that marriage. And at three years old, when she was three years old, we divorced. And I left and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And I did not take my daughter with me. I left her with her father because I couldn't take care of her. Um, I became a bartender. And boy, but did my alcoholism blow. I could have a drink any time I wanted to. And I was with people that drank the way I did. And I didn't have to be afraid of whether they uh, saw how I liked it. They seemed to like it as much as I did. And it was okay. Married again. Moved to Houston, Texas. And when I moved to Houston, I didn't know anybody. And I wasn't working. And there was a little lady that lived next door to us. And she was a retired interior decorator, very stately woman, beautiful lady. And I went over and I got acquainted with her and she invited me to play chess. She had this wonderful chess set. And I would go over there and uh, we'd sit down at the kitchen table and she'd open the kitchen cabinet and she'd put out a bottle of uh, Christian Brothers Brandy. And we'd sit down and we'd have a drink of Christian Brothers Brandy before we played chess. And I was there six months and I was with her every day to play chess. And I never once picked up not even one piece of that chess set. <laughs> but I want you to know that we did a real good job on the Christian Brothers Brandy. <laughs> she gave me a key to her apartment because there, she said there were times she had arthritis, you see, and, and she would get down in the chair out on the deck and couldn't get out sometimes, and she'd have to holler at me to come help her out of this chair. And I went over there. She called me one night. It was about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And she was sick. She hadn't been eating. And uh, she was nauseated. She was sick at her stomach and vomiting and had diarrhea. And she was too weak to get out of bed. And I went over there, and I got her up, and I got her to the bathroom, and I bathed her. And I changed her linen and put new clothes on her and put her back to bed. And I went home. And the next day, I called her daughter. And her daughter says, well, that's just tough because we've done all we're going to do. I don't want to know about it. You know, that's her problem. And I had nightmares from that time on. Because you see, that was me. I saw myself. Every night I went to sleep. And there was this picture of me sitting in a chair by a window with my bottle alone. And nobody wanting to be with me or care about me. And I knew that was me. That was where I was headed. 
and it scared me to death. But it didn't scare me bad enough to do anything about it. You know, I think about that lady. She was a real big part of my life for the time I was in Houston. And you know, today I don't even remember her name. You know, my self-centeredness. I didn't care what her name was at the time. I cared about who she was for me. I grew up in a nice Christian home. Um, no problems. I never heard my mother or father either one raise their voice to each other. And that, that made for a nice, wonderful, quiet, loving home. The only problem was I left home believing that that was real, you know, that that's the way it was done. And, you know, I never could accomplish that in my home. And there was always something wrong with me. And when I was a child, I would get in fights at school or have problems at school and then come home and I'd say, Mama, I feel this way. <coughs> Pardon me, this person hurt my feelings or I'm scared or I don't want to do this. And I'd really like to pull her hair out. And she'd say, well, honey, you shouldn't feel that way. But I did. And I heard you shouldn't feel that way so many times that I thought, then there must be something wrong with me because I feel all of those things. And I quit sharing. I shut down. I never let anybody else know how I felt. Because, you see, I wasn't supposed to feel that way, and so I didn't believe anybody else did. And I kept all those feelings to myself. There were a lot of three marriages in my in my drinking time, um, and a lot of men in between. You see, because I kept looking for somebody to tell me that I was okay, because I didn't feel okay. I didn't feel at all okay. Uh, I had a cousin that was almost a sister to me, and she was an overachiever. And there wasn't anything she couldn't do. She had she killed her first deer with a bow and arrow when she was 13. Yeah. She was on a trampoline team, won ribbons. Um, she was an expert swimmer and diver and won ribbons. Uh, she was a cheerleader, Dean's List. Uh, just, it was always Jerry. You know, she, she, she just did it all. And I spent so much time looking at everything that she could do that I couldn't see anything that I might be able to do. You know, I wanted to be like Jerry and I couldn't be. Never looked to see who I was because I didn't, I didn't get what she got. I didn't have what she had. I didn't have the pats on the head and the, the uh, attention that she got. And I wanted that. And then I started looking to other people for that validation. And God, I thought I was in love so many times. So many times I was in love. And I get to the program and I find out that I wasn't in love with anybody. I didn't know how to love anybody. All I loved was the way you made me feel. And when you couldn't make me feel that way anymore, I had to move on. And I thought, you didn't love me anymore. And it wasn't that. 
was all in me. I kept looking for the the self-esteem, the pats on the head, and everything that I did to fill me up, to make me feel good on the inside, to make me feel okay on the inside, did nothing but tear my self-esteem even lower. And the lower my self-esteem, the more I needed from you. And it just got worse and worse. You know, as a child, as a baby, we come into this world screaming and hollering, and the whole world comes to attention. And I could scream and holler, and someone would pick me up and love me and take care of me and feed me and change me. I could have anything I wanted. You know, the world belonged to me as a baby. And every time I wanted anything, I opened my mouth and hollered. And then I grew up a little bit, and somebody, I heard somebody say, no, no, you can't do that. You can't have that. And the power struggle began. And there, my, there, there are those I know that can holler and scream and, and still get what they want, but that didn't work for me. You know, I hollered and screamed, and my parents never let me have what I wanted. And I think during that time I was supposed to learn something about limitations. But, you know, I didn't accept limitations. I didn't want those limitations. And since I couldn't accept those limitations and I couldn't get them by throwing a fit, I learned something that worked for me for a hell of a long time. And it was called manipulation. And I became the most wonderful little child you ever saw. And I could smile and I could be sweet and I could be wonderful and I could just get anything I wanted. There were a few things I couldn't get, but I had patience. <laughs> yeah. I had patience. And it worked for me enough that that's the way I continued to go. And then when nobody was looking, I got it anyway. And then I worried about the consequences later. I look back when I did my fourth and fifth step, and I look back at, at my childhood. I don't remember a lot of my childhood. I don't remember the people in it. I don't remember the names of the people I went to school with. You know, all the pictures that I have in my head is of me sitting on the back steps of the school eating a peanut butter and banana sandwich. You know. Nobody around me. And if that picture has anybody in it, the face is blurred. You know, and I thought, I can't remember these people. I can't remember any of it. I thought, maybe it's brain damage. And my husband says, well, I don't know, but I think possibly it could be self-centeredness. <laughs> And I said, well, I think you may have something there. That's closer <laughs> to the truth. I did what I wanted to when I wanted to because I wanted to. And I didn't care. I didn't care what, whether you liked it or not. I worried about that later. 
I walked on people, I used people to get what I wanted. Um, every time I moved, I kept thinking everything was going to be better. It never was. I left Houston, and I left that second husband, and I moved to Little Rock, Arkansas. And by this time, I hated men. You see, because it was all their fault. And we've heard that once before this weekend. And it had absolutely nothing to do with those men. It had everything to do with me. But you see, I still couldn't live without the man. I needed that person to validate me. But I had decided that I was going to be used no longer by you men. I decided that my best route was to use you. So I did. I did. I was going to do the picking and I was going to do the choosing and then it was going to be me that was in charge of this deal. You know? And I tried that. I guess I've tried everything that there was to try. The alcohol. I tried some drugs. But you see, there's, I have this control problem. I like to be in control. And I never knew what the drug was going to do to me, but I knew what alcohol would do. And I stuck with what I could control. It's really important for me to do that. And I spent my life trying to get things to work, and they never would. I tried it all. And I got married again. I was working at um, Capital Club as a cocktail waitress. <coughs> this man came in, and he was drunk every time he came in. And he would ask me out, and I'd say no. I turned the man down nine times because he was always drunk. And one night he came in and he had a date. She was a beautiful date. And uh, he was sober. They had cocktails, went next door and had dinner. Danced, had after-dinner drinks. He was a perfect gentleman. I thought, well, you know, maybe he's okay after all. <laughs> so the next time he asked me out, I said, okay. That's insane. The man was sober one out of ten times, and that made him all right. <laughs> and we started dating, and this, this, this guy would pick me up after work. And I'd, he'd pick me up at the door, and he'd have a drink sitting on the dashboard. And I'd crawl in that Cadillac, and I'd prop my feet up, and I'd pick up that drink, and I'd throw it back. And I said, now, this is the way to live. And you see, he drank the way I like to drink. And I didn't have to worry. Then he was drinking more than I drank. And that was even better. Because I could drink the way I wanted to drink, and he couldn't remember it. Um, he never knew what kind of a drinking problem I had. Because he always got, he was always in blackouts, or he was pretty glubby glub most of the time. And you see, that was real important to me. Because as long as I was by his side and on his arm, you saw his drinking and not mine. I looked good. 
I looked good because he was worse drunk than I was. And we were married for nine years and we, we were daily drinkers. And we would start early and we would drink late. And I did all the driving, took care of him. I had to take care of my supply, you know. And we'd come home and we'd fight. Um, we didn't get physical. I think the most physical, I, I threw a lot of things. I was a good thrower. <laughs> and uh, until I had the house redone, the, the wallpaper was, <laughs> was really weird. It had all kinds of stuff on it, you know, like ketchup and bacon. <laughs> but the only physical thing that I really ever did was I turned a pie upside down on his head one night. <laughs> and thank God he laughed, you know. It scared me to death because I just knew I was going to be dead. But we fought. And I would scream and I would holler and I would throw things. And I would get all of this stuff that was inside of me out. And I went to bed that night. And the next morning we'd wake up and he would have been in a blackout and he wouldn't remember that there was a fight. And I had gotten all of this off of my chest and so I was okay. And we're wonderful. And it's time to do it again. And so we do the same thing over. Day in and day out. Day after day. We began going to moving from the little the leather bottles and the the uh, more than bank buildings and the, everything down to the pool halls and the beer joints and the packs and the old hickory was the bottom of the whole thing because we couldn't drink in those places anymore because there wasn't anybody in there that drank the way we did. And so we ended up in, in the joints, the real dumpy joints. Love to gamble, competition, anything that would make me feel better about me and anything that I could do that would make me feel good. If I thought I could be good at it, I tried it. And I shot, I learned to shoot pool and I learned to shoot shuffleboard. And there were times that I would be so drunk that I was betting $200 a game on a shuffleboard game and didn't, didn't think anything about it. On Halloween 1980, Gerald had a heart attack and he was in the beer joint and he went from that beer joint to the hospital and he was in the hospital two weeks and when he came out and I picked him up, and the doctor says, go home, don't drink, don't smoke, don't do anything, and your wife does all the driving. And we were terrified. And they told us, don't argue with him. Don't fight with him. He's a grown man. He knows what he needs to do. And I picked him up that morning, and it was 1130. He said, take me to Pex. And I said, yes, but we can't do that. And he says, no, I've got to go to Peck's. I've got to let him know that I'm okay. <laughs> so we went to Peck's. <laughs> he went from, the from Peck's beer joint to the hospital and from the hospital to Peck's beer joint. 
And we were there until after 6 o'clock, drinking. And I was terrified. And we didn't know how to go home and not drink and do nothing. I don't. And we couldn't do it. And for the next 30 days, we got up in the morning and we started drinking and, and we drank until the time we went to bed that night. And he went into the hospital on months later, 30 days later, for an arteriogram. And while he was in there, he kind of, his head straightened out and he was off of the alcohol for a little while. And he was able to see where he was. And he picked up the phone and he called friend in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was thrilled to death. Thrilled to death. Because thank God everything was going to be okay. And I just knew it was going to be okay. I picked him up from the hospital this time. Went home and there was a guy, two fellows sitting in the car out front, waiting for him. Going to take him to a noon meeting. They weren't going to let him go inside. They didn't want him anywhere near a refrigerator. And they took him straight from my car to their car and to an AA meeting. And I thought, thank God, you know, it's going to be all right. But you see, God had other plans. You know, I just knew that if he was okay, then I was going to be okay. We could get back to some kind of normal living. But you see, I had a hangover. And I needed to go out and I needed to buy groceries and I needed to bring it home and fix him a nice dinner and have support him in, in this new sobriety. But I was hungover enough that I needed something to level off with and I had me a screwdriver. And that screwdriver didn't work, so I had me another one. And that one didn't work and I had the third one and I was making my list and I was getting ready to get in the car. Top that third one off a little bit, just so it because I needed one to get to the grocery store. Always did. Never went to the grocery store without a drink. Never got in my car without a drink. I never did level off. I went from hungover to full-blown smashed. And I ended up in a bar drinking. And it was like all the hope that I had that everything was going to be okay came crashing down on top of me. It was like God tapped me on the shoulder and says, Sorry, honey, if y'all are going to do this, you're going to have to do it together. And that moment of clarity of saying, let me show you where you are and let me show you what your life has been and where you're headed. And I saw my life for the first time. You see, my excuse for drinking was at an AA meeting. And I didn't have any excuses. And I had every reason in the world not to be drunk that day, and I was. And I couldn't go home. I couldn't go home because my husband was sober and trying to do something about his drinking, and I was drunk, and I was devastated. And I knew then that his drinking had absolutely nothing to do with me or my life, that if I was going to be anything other than what I was, that it was going to have to be something for me. My hairdresser called him and let him know I was okay. The next morning she fixed my hair so I didn't look quite so bad. I called him from her place and told him that I wanted to go to an AA meeting. And he says, well, I told him I wanted to go with him. And he said, well, I'm going to a men's meeting. You know, this is for men. And I thought, my God, I've hit this, hit this place and I'm ready to do something. And, and 
Hey, A's for men, you know. <laughs> what, what do I do now? Where do I take this? You know. And so then I told him, I said, no, I, don't they have anything for women? And he says, I'll see. And he got, when I got home, he had a list of names. And I picked one. And the one I picked was somebody that I had heard her name. We had a mutual friend, you see. And this mutual friend had come down to my house one day and said, uh, I've got a friend moving in up the street. And it was Sunday, and she doesn't have anything to drink. Do you have anything? And I said, uh, just a minute. And I went out in the garage, and I popped the top trunk of my car, pulled a quart of whiskey out of the case I carry in my trunk. <laughs> and I gave it to her. And see, I knew this woman owed me a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> I also knew that that meant she drank. <laughs> And she was the only one on there that I knew drank. And I called her. And we talked on the phone for a little while, and I met her at an AA meeting, women's meeting on Thursday night. And I don't remember anything that was said in that meeting. I know that I laughed and I cried the whole time. And this may make a lot of you sick, make you want to throw up. But the desire to drink left me and has never returned. I was drinking close to a quart of whiskey a day, and many mornings I would get up and shaking and have to have that drink. And I walked into that meeting that night and I carried three cups of coffee and I didn't spill a drop. And I was home. I wanted this program more than I wanted anything else in the world. It was the first thing that I had seen that gave me any hope. It was the first time that I'd heard anyone say that they felt what I felt, and it was okay. And I asked this lady to be my sponsor. And she told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, and I did. I got through doing that. I'm the good alcoholic that I am, that if a little bit's good, a lot's got to be better. And I did another 90. Then I did another 90. After that, I did another 90. The first two years of this program, I didn't miss a meeting. I may have missed a dozen meetings, but it wasn't because I couldn't, I didn't want to go. It was because I couldn't get there. I was on the road traveling or something. And I didn't go to that many meetings because I was afraid I was going to get drunk. I went to that many meetings because I was sick and tired of being a victim of my own emotions. You see, because I'd spent my life thinking that I was in charge of me. I was in charge of me. And I wasn't. The second half of step one, it says, my life was unmanageable. I knew what that meant. I knew exactly what that meant. Because my emotions ran my life, fear ran my life, who you were ran my life and dictated. I was a ping pong ball. I never made any decisions in my life. But I sure made a hell of a lot of choices based on fear. I really did. And... Today I know that, you know, feelings are real, but they lie to me. And I've got to experience those feelings, and I've got to share those feelings. But my God, I, can't, I had to quit making decisions based on those feelings. I worked this program as hard as I could work it. And I started sponsoring early. 
I started sponsoring at six months sober. Somebody came to me and wanted me to, to sponsor them. I went to my sponsor and I said, what do I do? She wants me to sponsor her. She said, go for it. Well, that one's still drinking. You know, but I'm not. I haven't had to drink. I want to tell you that I thought for a while that when I got in this program and I heard that word serenity and I thought, my God, this is going to be wonderful to accomplish that serenity. That meant peace, every, you know, no conflict. I was going to have a wonderful life. <laughs> serenity is not the lack of conflict. And it's not the, the lack of pain. Serenity is the peace in spite of and in the midst of that pain. If I had known all of the things that, that, that Gerald and I were going to have to go through, I never would have made it. We started out almost in bankruptcy, trying to decide whether we were going to file bankruptcy or not. I was working for him for no money. His office building was foreclosed on, or we closed, he sold it and closed the deal the day before foreclosure. We got sued for $50,000. The IRS wanted $40,000. We cleared 14000 on the building, working for no money on, didn't know. You know, somebody said, well, Gerald, aren't you worried? And he said, no. You know, $90,000, why worry? You know, <laughs> if it was 9000 I'd be scared stiff. I'd be really worried, you know. But 90000 was something we could not even try to touch. And I thank God this day, every day, for those things that he put in our lives that were just so totally out of our control. It's like... I talk about, it's like stepping off a cliff, you know, God says, tells me, says, step off this cliff and let me show you I can, I'll catch you. And you know, if I don't ever step off that cliff, I never know he will. I'll run. And he kept giving me cliffs that I couldn't run from. I had no choice but to step off. And you see, I didn't know anything about this power in this program. And I had a lot of learning to do. And I saw that step too, and it was, I believe in a power greater than myself. And I knew that I had to take these steps in order, and I didn't know about the power. Hell, it had been 40 years, and I hadn't believed. I, I didn't have a whole lot of time. <coughs> so I as much as asked my sponsor, do you believe in this power? And my God, she told me with everything she had that she believed. I said, okay, if you believe, then I'm going to believe. And I made the choice to believe. I chose to believe that that power was real. And a strange thing happened when I did that. I found out that I couldn't, I couldn't ride the fence anymore. Could not ride the fence anymore. I was either going to believe or I wasn't going to believe. And that was my choice. People had told me all my life, Jenny, you just need some faith. And I said, you bet I do. You know? And I kept waiting for faith to happen and faith never happened. One day I woke up and I chose to believe. And I found out faith was a choice. That I had the choice to believe. 
But if I was going to believe, I had to go with it. It's not just believing, it's acting as if I believe it. And that's what I had to do. And that's where my program took me. And I started acting as if this God were real in my life and that he indeed was going to take care of me. And we showed up at work and I'd say, God, it's yours. You know, if we make it fine, if we don't, then I'm sure you've got a reason for it. And on Thursday, we would not have the payroll, and on Friday, we would. And on Thursday, we wouldn't have the payroll, and on Friday, we would. And on Thursday, we wouldn't have the payroll, and on Friday, we would. And that went on for two years. And one day, the microfilm machine went out. A repairman came and said, you got to have a new one. It's gone. can't do any more with it. And that machine was going to cost us $5,000. And we didn't have $5,000. Gerald says, well, bring us one. And I looked at him. He said, well, we'll worry about paying for it later. The man walked out of there and the fellow walked in off the street. And they were doing, he was working on this, some commercial deal and they need title insurance for this big commercial deal. And our commission check was going to be $5,000. And the day they delivered that machine and laid the bill on the table for $5,000, that afternoon the mail ran and our commission check for $5,000 was in that mail. We could have done anything. We could have tried every way in the world to accomplish, to run and panic and try to help make this stuff happen. And it never would have worked. But we had to believe I have had to take this program literally. If I'm going to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, that's what i got to do. I can't just say I'm going to do that when it's convenient. It had to become literal in my life. I'm either going to do it or I'm not. Things turned around. We got to doing better. Started paying ourselves. One day, I had to go talk or do a worksheet at uh, Wolf Street. And on the way back, I passed Worthen Branch. And we had moved our checking account to Savers, and I, I had left some money in this account, and I'd forgotten about it for about six months, six, seven months. And so I'm going to stop in there and move that money. And I went in and closed out those accounts, and I forgot that I hadn't closed out the savings account. And they handed me $700 in cash. And I went to the office and I thought, scared me to death with all that money in there. I got my paycheck the next morning and I said, I'm going to give it to, the, to our runner and have him deposit it. And you know, at, during those times, we needed all of our money in, in the checking account. And I was scared to death because, you know, that Friday I went all day long and I forgot about that money. And I never did get it to the bank. And I went home and I had it in my purse and I was wrapped around it like this. I thought, my God, I can't let Gerald know he'll die. He'll kill me. Monday morning we showed back up in the office and he called me into his office and he said, guess what? I said, what? And he read me a letter from the bank that said that the IRS had put a hold on our account, had closed both checking accounts and savings accounts. And the only money we had was the money in, my, in our purse. 
I sat there and I started laughing. And I laughed until I was almost hysterical. And he sat there and he looked at me and he says, what is so damn funny? He says, this is tacky. And I says, I think God thought so too. And I got up and I went into my desk and I came back with all that money and I laid it out on his desk. And there was just enough money to cover all the outstanding checks, the mortgage payment, everything that was loose, and enough money to buy groceries on for the next two weeks until we got paid. No more than that, just enough. And I sat there and I looked at him. I said, how can you get angry when you can see God working? This is the end of side one. Please turn your cassette at this time and continue playing. Thank you. Side two will continue in just a moment. There was never a time in my life I didn't beat my way to the bank to get my money in there. And for some reason I didn't that day. And it got us through. And I began to count on these things. God looked after me when I didn't even know he was looking after me. In 1985, Gerald had to have open heart surgery and to have bypass surgery. And we got through that. Both of us work in this program. Both of us sponsoring. He was on a lot of boards, sometimes going in different directions. And we went in different directions for a long time. And we had to because I had to find the God of my understanding. And Gerald had been that God for so long. And I had to let him hurt a lot of times when I didn't really know how to. And I would leave him sitting in his big black chair in a lot of pain and screaming at me that I didn't care about him, that I didn't love him. And I'd have to get up and walk out of that house and get in the car and go to the meeting. And I'd get about a half a block. I'd say, I gotta go back, I gotta go back. I can't leave him that way. And I'd hear my sponsor say, you can't help anybody unless you're okay yourself. And I'd put that car in gear and I'd take off. And I'd go to that meeting and I'd come back and he was okay. There were a lot of things that I had to let go of. There were a lot of changes that I had to do. I didn't know what was going to happen to my marriage when I got sober because I was going to have to change and I didn't know how that was going to affect my marriage. And I had to become willing to walk out of that house and start over by myself if need be. And when I figured out that I could do that, then I didn't have to be afraid of it anymore. And I had to let, I had to give him to God. I turned my will and my life over to care of God. And then I wanted to take care of him. And it wasn't working. And I realized that I had to, if it was going to work at all, that I had to turn his will and his life over to care of God. And when he came in and he was restless and irritable and discontent and raising Cain, I would look at him and I'd think, Boy, God must really be doing a number on him today. <laughs> and that worked for me. I let God have him. 
and all the pain and all the anger and the frustration that he might be directing at me was not his fight with me it was his fight with his own higher power and I let that go our marriage began to get stronger it took about four years before we could really communicate but you see I had quit doing things for him that kept his self-esteem low and the next thing you know he wasn't trying to hold on to me as much as he used to and that need for me and that need to be needed was leaving me and as he was able to let me go it went from needing me to respecting me and I found out that's what I wanted all the time anyway and didn't know it we got through his heart surgery and he was a new man happy joyous and free and that was in 85 1987 he came down he ended up in the hospital again with congestive heart failure and uh, we worked through that and there were days that I was up around the clock 24 hours a day I was feeding him every two hours around the clock and I didn't have the strength I couldn't pray I couldn't do anything and my prayer was thank you God thank you God thank you God over and over and over again and what that gave me and I didn't know that in those little three little words carried so much strength because when every time I said thank you God I heard within me who I was what I was and that he was going to be okay and I was too and my strength came from those three little words thank you God gratitude gratitude prayers have kept me throughout he got well after that and then it had wasn't then uh, we started a new business in 88 and uh, we're doing fine and he started getting tired again thought his congestive heart failure was coming back went to the doctor to see about it and you know it wasn't his heart the heart that had filled up most of the side of his chest was now the size of a normal human heart and his cardiologist says it, there's no way to tell that he's ever been in congestive heart failure but you see there was something else wrong they found cancer and that was real hard to take real hard to take the people in this program surrounded us and held us up and loved us through the whole thing I had in 87 they told me he had a 50-50 chance of living a year and I had already started letting go so I was okay because I knew I wasn't going to have him very long and you know we had a real good time those last few months and there were meetings in the home there was a meeting a couple of weeks before he went back to the hospital he was up there in his hospital bed you know in the middle of the living room looking out over this river and he had all these people in there 
wonderful meeting, and he was holding court, <laughs> you know, and it was great. And um, we had a lot of time to talk. Took him to the hospital that last time on Tuesday, and we were going to put him in for some chemo. And he was telling everybody what to do and how to do it. <laughs> and um, Tuesday, everything was just wonderful and fine. Wednesday, I was there, and I don't know why, but I cried all day Wednesday. Just teared up and cried. Look at me and I'd cry. Say something to me and I'd cry. And I couldn't figure it out. I just couldn't figure it out. So along about noon, I decided it was time I got in touch with what I was feeling. See, I didn't want to look at it. And I was sitting in the little cafeteria. And I was sitting there and I was eating this dumb turkey sandwich. And I was watching some fool walk down the hall. This tears started coming in my eyes. And I said, okay, Jenny, it's time you got in touch with this. I said, what are you feeling? And I realized what I was feeling. I was feeling so loved, the most incredible, overpowering, consuming love from my higher power that I couldn't hold it. It was just boiling up inside and pouring out. And I had to smile, you see. And I realized that I wasn't crying because I knew that my husband was not going home this time. I, mean, I wasn't crying because I knew that. I knew that because I was crying. Because God came in and he picked me up and he said, I love you and this is how much and it's going to be okay. And I cried the rest of that day. Teary. And I just soaked up all of that love. And when I walked in that hospital the next day, I was okay. And that was the last day I saw him alive. But God gave me that strength. He gave me what I needed to get through every bit of it. And you know the thought that came to my mind when the nurse called him and said, he slipped away. And I thought, you know, it like to slip away. There wasn't anybody in this world that loved to travel and go places any more than this man did. <laughs> he loved to travel. In fact, he told me one time, he says, just tell Jay to get me back on my feet one more time because I want to go somewhere. And I got to thinking about that and I said, boy, what a trip. Yeah. And then my house filled up with you people. My neighbors told me later, she said, I've seen a lot of people that have come at funerals, you know, and and uh, they've come and visited and said hello and gone, you know. She says, my God, people came to your house and stayed. <laughs> my brother says, well, sister says, I don't think I've ever been to a wake before, but I think I have now. <laughs> And best of all, my daughter, who's now in the program of Al-Anon, calls me four times a week 
to make sure that her group's doing it right. <laughs> she came up to me and she says, well, Mother says, I don't know whether this is appropriate or not. She says, but I've never had so much fun in all my life. And I thought, you know, how wonderful. I looked up and I saw this guy come through my door and I said, well, Ed, every time I look up, you're coming in. And he says, I know. He says, I can't stay away. It feels too good over here. For four days, that house was full and so full of love. It was just incredible. And my daughter felt that. Then I got to thinking, my God, what kind of life could she have had if a funeral was the best time she'd ever had in her life? <laughs> you know. God gives me everything I need. You know, I remember when my, I, I seem to, I don't want this to be a downer. I, I'm, you know, the only thing that I can tell you is that, you know, we're not in here to get sober and think that our life is going to go smooth from now because it's not. It's not. You know, I'm always going to be looking at those times. But today I can go through them without drinking. You know, I was talking about when we first came in, the bankruptcy and the, the IRS and the lawsuit. Well, we even got sued for a million dollars. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. I never got sued for a million dollars before. <laughs> Um, but my mother died of cancer two months later his mother died of cancer and we had to you know those things are we're going to have those things we're going to have we're going to run into a lot of things people we love are going to go and I remember the day that my mother died and I went to a meeting and I had this thing in my gut that says you know that it's not finished and I went to that meeting, and it was on the big books. We were studying the big book, and it was the twelve, the uh, doctor's opinion. And nowhere in the doctor's opinion does it say anything about a mother-daughter relationship. But for about ten minutes, we talked on a mother-daughter relationship. And during that time, that knot in my stomach melted and just floated away. And I knew it was okay. And we went back to the doctor's opinion, and I said, "Thank you, God." I got home that night and the phone rang. And I said, Mother died a little after 9 o'clock. And I didn't know what to do. I was standing there. I didn't know how to take it. Didn't know what was going to happen. The phone rang. And I picked up the phone. It was a lady, young girl that I had taken to meetings several times before. And she says, Jenny, I know I need this, this program. And I also know that I need God's help to have it. And I can't ask him. And I said, well, you know, why can't you ask? And she said, well, because I'm mad at him. And I said, would you like to share with me why you're mad at him? And she said, yes, it's because my cat died. And you see, I couldn't, God couldn't sit down on the side of my bed and tell me everything I needed to hear at that moment. But he sat me down on the side of my bed and he had me telling someone else all those things I needed to hear at that moment.
and went right in the, she never did know that my mother had just died. And when I got through talking with her, I'm sitting there and I'm smiling. I'm thinking, my God, I don't know. That day was absolutely incredible. I said, I just can't believe it. Everything that has been given to me came straight from the grace of God. And that big book told me when I came in, the first thing we had to do was quit playing God. And that's what I had to quit doing. And I've tried to the best of my ability not to do that. And since Gerald's death, I've had to deal with his children. And that hasn't been easy. And I have learned the fine art of waiting and patience. And I realized that I had heard from his daughter that she had thought that when he got sober, he would change. And she said, and he got sober, and he didn't change. And I thought, oh, you poor child. You've got such an image of him that you can't see what's happened to your father. But I knew for me, when I have to go, when I have to see them, that I go there representing the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought, you know, I come in playing God. That was my problem. And the solution was becoming godlike. Not not the power of God, but the attributes of God. My concept of God when I got here, playing God, was judgmental, impatient, unforgiving. All of those things that that I was and I have had to become something else. And I will be my concept of God. And if I want to know what my relationship is to that higher power that has been so good to me, all I have to do is look around and see how I treat you. And I'll know. It was funny because I didn't know how I was going to talk this morning because so much of of my life was Gerald and so much of Gerald's life was sickness. And I was a, did a worksheet talk with this lady and I ended up talking about the miracles in this program. And I thought about that later and I thought, well, you know, I really didn't do that lady right. Went to the meeting that night and they had posters, flyers out on the table and uh, announcing Archipel. The meeting that night was on miracles. And the flyer came around to me and I pulled it over and I saw the theme of the conference, the age of miracles. My life is a miracle. Everyone else in here is a miracle because I'm not doing today what I used to do. And I didn't do that with my own power. Because if I could have done it on my own, I would have done it a long time ago. I hope that you leave here realizing the miracles of this program. Because I do. Thank you for having me.